0: are we set up are we recording?
1: We are. Yes. The the waveform is waving as audio is supposed to do. So, I think that's a pretty good sign.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Alexander Graham Bell. A real one.
1: How did he how does post the first telephone like how does that even work?
0: I mean, I don't this is where our listeners come for but I'm happy to google it I think like I mean obviously it transferred through the wires
1: yeah I know wires were involved but was there another phone like there had to be so he invented the first telephones
2: plural
0: well yeah obviously <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> he was just speaking into a box now I wonder if Recording was invented before. Okay, the first telephone had, or I suppose telephones, had two parts: a transmitter and a receiver. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. In case anyone wanted me to cite my sources, the transmitter comprised three parts: a drum-like device, a cylinder with a covered end, a needle, and a battery. The covered end of the drum-like device was attached to the needle. The needle was connected by a wire to the battery, and the battery was connected by its wire to receiver. When I spoke into the open end of the drum-like device, his voice made the paper and you vibrate, which trans- converted into an electric current.
2: Huh! So That's we,
0: kind of a shitty explanation. I have a lot of questions left.
1: So it was two cans on a string?
0: Ah, with batteries.
1: Yeah, and the electronic current, which somehow unbeknownst to Encyclopedia Britannica, made his voice audible to the receiver.
0: Most of the technological revolution of the late 19th and early 20th century Means mostly to be, we're going to take old wish we've been using for years and pump it through with a thousand bolts and see if it doesn't look better. And the answer, it turns out, is usually yeah. But I imagine a lot of times also, like,
1: Fortune favors the brave. Um. I,
0: God... You've made a great Modelo commercial here
1: today. Yeah. It's <laughs> just, just like a whole backstory of like five guys just getting electrocuted, and then it's one Graham Bell who just like lives and he's the hero and drinks the Modelo <laughs> on the graves of his successors.
0: As I used to say in debate when people were like, your plan will cause people to die, you gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> I seriously will spend the entire podcast talking about anything but Nebraska football. So, like, that sounds good. We can totally talk about weird inventions the entire time. That sounds vastly preferable.
1: You you ever seen airplane prototypes? Those were awesome.
0: No, yeah, like, (laughs) Renaissance era, like, some guy's going to jump off of a cathedral and try and glide into a river and die.
2: Yes.
1: So good. I I love the one where, you know, it's basically a guy with wings jumping up and down, hoping that somehow one of these jumps would stay in the air. My favorite thing is like. On a lot
0: of them, we don't know if they were just absent-minded, bored doodles while, like, somebody was sitting in lecture, or if it was, like, a very earnest attempt at playing.
2: Because <laughs> they're so dumb, we're like,
0: I mean, a famous guy made it, but this might have been a bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, Da Vinci's inventions. I sincerely doubt he thought even 75% of those were palatable beyond just... What can I draw that looks cool? You know, like every other kid who's ever taken this course in, in the American schooling system. What can I draw on this paper that looks cool? And for him, it just happened to be like a tank that was the size of a merry-go-round that shot cannons at a 360-degree angle and spun around and flew. So
0: usually, you aside from the flying, why aren't there more 360 tanks?
1: I guess maybe because you just have to, have, like, space them out to the point where you could only really have one of them, and once the other one was so far away that it was a guarantee it wouldn't get hit by the fire of the other one. So I just think it's not convenient. Like, I think five tanks are better than one 360-degree tank.
0: Okay, I, I, I agree with that, Yeah, it's, it's probably a matter of convenience. I've also always asked myself, like, why not more armor? Like, yeah, you want to be light and be able to move, but for, like, defensive positions, I don't know. Hire me to be a military contractor. I think I could have this whole Ukraine thing over if the Wimsy would just give me a call. <laughs> and, like, you know, you know me. I'm I'm from Nebraska, so, like, everything I make is going to be held together with duct tape and bailing wire. It's going to cost you one trip to the base hardware.
1: One amazing piece of History Channel programming I have consumed was a... (laughs) I'm but I'm so good for it. (laughs) It was worst military inventions, and my favorite was the cat bomb, which is, you know, the U.S. wanted to figure out how to make bombs that, you know, didn't go in the water and hit a ship. And somebody somewhere in the military had the idea... That since cats don't like water, if you made a cat direct the bomb, it wouldn't go in the water.
0: To trap a cat to the bomb.
1: I forget the configuration, but it was essentially, we're going to blow up uh, Garfield over here in hopes that it takes out a ship. (laughs) Because Garfield, he may explode, but he will not explode while wet. (laughs)
2: I think the great thing
0: is that these are necessarily suicide bomber cats. Which side note, great punk band name. Kamikaze cat? Very good. I would I would watch that show with the bourbon.
2: I I think this is awesome because if you had the cats do it more than once they would recognize this is a bad idea. Or if you showed the other cats just take a
1: cat, independent of any other bombing experience. All right, yeah. then, go blow up some Germans. I know it sounds like a great idea if you're cool with losing, you know, couple hundred cats. But the military, like high-ranking guy or whatever, dude with uniform and lots of medals on it, they interviewed for the show about the idea. Said someone came up to me. Instead, since cats don't like water, we're going to put them in the bomb and the bomb won't hit the water. I'd punch you in the face and call you an idiot. <laughs> yeah. I think
0: it's great because I was reading, uh, I read a book about U.S. bombing campaigns of World War II. It's called The Bomber Mafia. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. It's about a lot. I, did, did you read this one? I know I recommend you, Gladwell.
1: I've read The Tipping Point and Outliers, and that's it.
0: I don't remember the tipping point being that great, but Outliers is
1: very good. I liked Outliers more, but the tipping point was pretty good. It's just, it it falls under the category of book I like, where it's, I am going to make up a concept and define it as thoroughly as humanly possible. Regardless of the concept's effectiveness or usefulness in real life, I will read or consume almost anything, where someone's like, I have poured over data to explain you know, a completely useless trend. That's kind of... Yeah,
0: although, Gladwell, normally there is a point that you can kind of carry forward at. Like, like I apply the thinking of outliers pretty heavily in a couple areas of my life. But I think, like, the way Gladwell works is you can explain the point of any Gladwell book in five minutes tops. But
1: that could reasons. be a lot less for a book, I would think. Five minutes to explain one but, book? And
0: you could get the whole gist, right? Like, the, they, they had Bible do, like, six TED Talks, because all of his books are just long TED Talks. Like, it is really bite-sized information, but then he expands it to the point where you understand it almost more fully than you have to. And by explaining it in such a way, I think it teaches you a lot. But anyway, this book, Bomber Mafia, is all about, like, war and the ideo- ideological necessities of war and things like that. And um, it's, it's pretty good. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. I brought it up because he talked about the invention of Napalm. Do you know how Napalm was created?
1: Uh, accident.
0: Dudes at, I believe, Cornell, with too much money on their hands, dicking around with flammable material. Napalm started as a prank. They were like, what can you use to freak out our professor? Get pranked. They were like, our grad
2: drag- <laughs> Like, I can with their
0: boss, so they napalmed
2: him.
1: Doing war crimes in class gone wrong.
2: <laughs> exactly, right? Like, um...
0: Uh, I think one of the other chemicals they came up with
1: there literally happened because of the coffee spill. Which, back then, coffee was a lot less coffee and a lot more chemicals. I say having no knowledge of coffee. I mean, going back then, coffee
0: was
1: just worse. Yeah. Like, wasn't it like know, cocaine what? like Coca Cola was?
0: No, Coca Cola had actual, honest to God, cocaine, but it was invented to kind of like stave off. Like, people who were making health beverages were shocking them full of alcohol because, as it turns out, when you are selling snake oil, you want your snake oil to have some effect, and people would say, oh gosh, I feel different after they. Down like a bunch of herbs and spices that also had a thick whiskey in it. Um, And so they were like, oh god, oh shit, what are we going to do? Everyone's going to know we're frauds. And then this guy was like, hey man, there's this stuff called cocaine. Let's put it in a fizzy brown drink to take over the world.
1: It, It is really insane on multiple fronts that A, how much of medicine in like the 1800s was alcohol or cocaine, and B, Just the sheer power a Coke King beverage had. like, governments are less powerful than Coca-Cola. Like, at least 50, if not 75, governments in the world are less powerful than, you know, the red pop. Yeah,
0: not to mention that the blue pop only exists to be a competitor to the red pop, right? Yeah. People will fight me on this, but, like, when you think about what the concept of a knockoff is, Pepsi
2: isn't a name brand. Pepsi is a knockoff. Yeah.
1: No, it's, 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 it's Pepsi okay, which Pepsi tried to flip I, I, I in a marketing prefer, campaign, but...
0: Uh. I prefer Pepsi in a lot of situations, and it's still a knockoff, right? Like... <laughs> yeah. Um, another fun cocaine fact, uh, are you familiar with SDR's speech, The Day of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, a day that you live in informate, blah, 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 you know the famous one?
1: Yeah, I, I I know that line and nothing else.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, welcome to the American education system, we had to memorize that for a test at some point. Oh, (laughs) please. Forgot the point of the speech. But anyway, um... He was high, out of his mind, on cocaine when he gave that speech. Not because FDR abused cocaine, but because he woke up that morning with a sinus headache. And what people used to prescribe for sinus headaches was a cotton swab just dipped in cocaine. Because it does clear up your sinus issues.
1: I'm willing to bet, given uh, the people who have held that position and just the medicine over certain time periods, before and after, uh, it was decidedly acceptable to do so. I think it's uh, whatever number you're thinking, add 10, and that's the amount of presents who have done Coke. (laughs) Well, you're be the number of presents who have drank
0: Coca-Cola? Yeah. Oh. No, I mean... JFK was on pretty high-level painkillers all of the time, because he had, like, horrific back pain, but had to have, like, crazy day-to-day schedules. Um, Also, uh, the Nazis gave their fighter pilots mess. Like, there's actually,
1: like, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if (laughs) you didn't focus, right? I mean, why not?
0: I do I think it's crazy that, like, Adderall is basically meth.
1: Yeah. No, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. what I've heard.
0: Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, what else is there talking about? How about the weather? Uh, it's Good. I, I haven't been here in a week. Has it rained? It feels like it's rained.
1: In my neck of the woods, it rained yesterday.
0: I I flew over your neck of the woods yesterday. Oh, nice. Flying over western Nebraska and eastern Colorado in, in what is a, you know, it was a Denver to Lincoln flight. So it was like a bus with wings. It was one of those things where, like, On the one side of the plane, they had two seats, and on the other side of the plane, they had one seat,
1: so that they could have room for an aisle. Ah, one of those planes.
0: I I know that it is probably actually harder to make, like, a 777 fly, like the giant Airbuses over the ocean. I realize that's probably harder, but every time I get on one of the tiny, like United Express flights, I'm like, how does this stay in the
1: air? Because it rattles around so much more. I don't know. Yeah, it's like we put things the size of a blue whale in motion in the sky, and it only costs us, you know, the safety of the planet to do so. So, like, that's pretty impressive.
0: It's a good deal. Yeah. Like, as deals with fate go. No. That's, that's
1: not a bad one. Of the stuff we do with fossil fuels, airplanes are probably the coolest.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of rad stuff with <laughs> fossil fuels, though, right? Like, <laughs> Mustangs exist. Audi convertibles exist.
1: Like, one. Okay, there you go. I'm not a big streetcar guy, but specifically engineered racing machines I can get behind. Yeah,
0: that's, that's
1: yeah, pretty rad. Um, yeah. Rocket fuel. Oh, yeah. Well, rockets are just big planes. <laughs> I such a good take. Oh, my God.
2: Have Justin rubbed
0: that up. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, telescopes no. are just
1: big glasses. What's that? Telescopes are just big glasses.
0: Binoculars are just big glasses. Telescopes are just a big monocle. That makes a bit more sense.
1: Oh. Telescopes are just big glasses. And rockets are just big planes.
0: Yeah. Like, fermentation tanks are just a big bucket.
2: Essentially.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you ever think we have too many words in the English language? Like, we are too able to describe existence?
1: Sometimes, but it also amazes me the amount of double, like, homonyms, that's what they're called, the words that mean two different things we have. Given the amount of words we have to describe, like, different ways of saying things, like, replied and responded, is there... Any noteworthy difference between those two words and their functions? No, we don't need those two words to exist simultaneously, but we do. But,
2: yeah.
1: but, but we have a word, you know, like take almost any word you can think of, like spell, you know, that means two different things. That means what letters are in this word or, you know, a curse you place on somebody.
0: Like... Yeah or a short amount of time for which you sit down or stand up or change your actions.
1: Exactly! Why does one word need to mean three different things, where one thing needs two different words? I'm, I'm going to disagree. I think that the efficient and
0: actually the perfect language would just be one word, where the context and inflection tells you everything you need to know about the being. I do so d- could mean motorbike, could mean light bulb, could mean car. Uh, uh, I just think it's inefficient to have. Why do we need 26 letters? We could do without you.
2: I've, I've
1: watched multiple YouTube video essays of a, a start out John Miesley, a guy who had a very. Yeah a man who had a very passionate defense of the letter C in an amazing documentary that you should watch on the, wherever you get your YouTube when you have the time the video is just called C, so good luck searching for it because uh, like C, you know, it makes the K sound that K also makes and the sound which, which S also makes so it is, you know, on its face, superfluous but he makes this brilliant defense of it in that video so I think all twenty-six are necessary because in his prequel to C W, a very good video oh, about the history of letter W, he delves into you know the evolution of the English alphabet as well and uh, why these letters are what they are. So, uh, yeah, that's,
0: that's pretty. I also think we should make a YouTube channel called In Defense, though, in which we give impact in defenses of things. That though, what is attacking? <laughs> it's like, I would love to get the defense of the windmill.
1: Well, I mean, solar power windmills and stuff. You have to specify windmills. Like, the putt-putt windmill. I'll, well, I'll defend no, that. I will defend all windmills. I'm a windmill guy.
0: I guess, like, some windmills may actually be under threat, in which case, come at me.
1: You have oh. just been elected as a Prime Minister of the Netherlands.
0: <laughs> oh, wow! Fantastic. <laughs> my, my first action as Prime Minister of the Netherlands would be to simplify the naming process. Because, again, why is it Holland, but also not Holland? But, like, C D P. Grey has a really good video about why it would be the way it be, but it shouldn't be that way.
1: Because isn't Holland just a region in the Netherlands?
0: This is correct, but it's like the only important region of the Netherlands.
1: Yeah, but fun fact, uh, do you know which country lost the Little League World Series this year?
0: I'm going to say it was not the Netherlands, but it might have been. I
1: don't know. Technically, the Netherlands, because Krakow, an island with about 150,000 people on it, managed I thought it was pronounced like Taboos. Cheers, though. Oh, uh, I... It has a weird accent mark over the sea I've never seen before, so I just wung it. But, uh,
2: <laughs> okay, bear it up.
1: But yeah, they are part of the Dutch NTAs, or Antilles, or whatever they're called, uh, which is like a bunch of Caribbean islands that the Netherlands just never let go of. And uh, yeah, so technically, the Netherlands came in second in the Little League World Series this year. And in the World Baseball Classic, which will come up 2023, I think, uh, yeah, the Netherlands will have a good team because of those Caribbean Island players who technically fall under their jurisdiction. So
0: this is complicated, though, because, like,
1: Scotland has a separate FIFA team. Oh, boom. This is the perfect transition. Okay, so Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland are all countries, but they belong to a kingdom of countries called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So Great Britain is the island next to Ireland. So fun fact, we did not we played in Ireland, the island, but we played in the Republic of Ireland, the country, which is not a part of the UK. But the northern half of the island of Ireland, Northern Ireland, is part of the U.K. Okay, it's a and quarter. That is,
0: that is highly disputed. <laughs> there has been like, a century worth of terrorism over whether or not it is.
1: Well, jurisdictionally speaking, according to the map I have access to on my phone, it is. But with, like, Brexit and stuff, re- support for reunification has hit, like, a 25-year peak. So...
0: Yeah, and it's, it's only rising as um, inflation hits the pound harder than it hits the euro. Mm-hmm. And also, like there has long been a lot of sentiment that Ireland should be united, and we can get into that when we talk about my trip to Ireland to watch the world's most irritating American football team. Nebraska right onside kickers. Yes.
1: Yeah. Welcome to the Republic of Ireland, where Nick saw an American football game played between the team this podcast was supposed to cover. And Northwestern, you seem like nice guys and have great fans. Yep. I just want to
0: say from the top, the Northwestern fans were very chill and very fun to talk to, a little bit of trash talk, we chatted with them on the way in and out of the stadium. Actually, sat like so. There was there was no, from what I could tell, Northwestern section. There was a Hunter section and then the Irish and Northwestern section. Okay. In which we, that makes my, sense. My my cousin bought our tickets with a VPN because they were cheaper on that side than they were on the Hunter side by like a hundred dollars a ticket.
1: No, that is amazingly efficient. I would have never thought of VPNing it for tickets.
0: No, it's really smart. Yeah. Um, I think he found out how to do it on the day. But, um, um, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the game was fantastic. The atmosphere was great. The Irish fans all sang along to Heroes of ride which was played before the game, in, like, a take-me-out-to-the-ball game fashion, which was pretty cool. Um, the Irish National Anthem was beautiful. Our band sucked. I'm just... The Cornhusker marching band got laughed out of the stadium. Mm-hmm. There were only like fifty of them. The Bradford Northwestern brought their whole band. Uh, interestingly, it was a Northwestern home game, so oh, all of the hype videos, the announcer, the like trim of the stadium, even was purple, uh, had like Northwestern slogans on it. So technically, we did not give up a home game. And we have not yet lost a home game this year.
1: No. And we have not lost a true road game in the United States of America this year.
0: Yeah. Our domestic record is still zero losses.
1: Yeah. Which, you know, converts to one European loss in the exchange rate nowadays.
0: (laughs) Actually, it was funny. While we were over there, the zero fell a little bit.
1: Isn't it below the dollar now?
0: I think it is even with the dollar.
1: Okay. Um, it came back up yesterday. For a while, you could buy an Arizona
0: IT for one euro, which they do have over there. But I think they were selling it for, like, a euro
1: fifty. Is it still called Arizona? Cause like, I,
0: I it is. But they, I almost bought one, well, but they didn't have Arnold Palmer's.
1: Ah. Wonder, yeah. wonder if it's named like the Tom Watson over there or something. That
0: would be so good for the Rory Baccaroy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> A Padre Harrington. I
0: mean, okay. Should we talk about. I kind of talked about the game day experience. It was great. It was fun to see. Um, that many Huster fans again we were like sitting across from them in the stadium and so what we were looking at was the sea of red and it was super cool to see that from like the other side of the stadium Um, wow our fans can travel I was blown away by uh, how many people were there there were people who were just in Dublin to experience the game from Dublin who didn't get tickets and I think that was cool too just knowing that like that was going to be fun. The Temple Bar area, which is, like, their bourbon street for or Ice, their Haymarket, so to speak. It's like, there like, was packed with red, red, cheese. Four bars they got started over the Oscar Bar. And one bar called Fitz Vimmons that became Coach Fitz's for the Northwestern fans. <laughs> uh
1: but yeah, it was uh, Dublin's a
0: lovely place. I highly recommend that you go. Just don't go watch
1: the Huskers play, <laughs> which you did. I did, uh-huh. and the game, the game
0: began very well. I
2: might add. I, I
1: when it, yeah, that first drive was the best, like play calling and casting wise. I have seen from the Huskers since I don't even know when. So we yeah,
0: very much had our stuff together, looked organized, had clearly... I think it was probably one of the... Scott has caught
1: flag and become somewhat good for rehearsing drives. Which I don't hate in so much as you look good outside of those rehearsed drives. But given, you know, a previous opener... Ohio State 2020, where uh, Nebraska marched down the field and scored right away and ended up losing by, like, 35, I sort of knew better than to look, you know, a gift horse in the mouth of a first drive of the season because guarantee they had worked out that exact sequence of plays so many times to the point where, you know, failing at them is a tougher task than succeeding.
0: But yeah, I mean that looked automatic. We looked like a nine-win team right there, at least. And so, it, oh yeah, I mean it looked great. And I think we all looked at each other and said, "Can we keep up eighty percent of that composure?" And for a lot of games, the offense looked really good. Uh, can we talk about can we talk about upsides before we talk about the downsides? I mean, what are the bright points to draw away?
1: A couple, like three. Uh, one uh, this is not as much of an upside as I had anticipated it being uh, for the first three quarters, but Casey Thompson and the passing game looked a lot better. Uh, like like I said, the first drive was the best passing I have seen out of the Nebraska quarterback from quite some time. And
0: that one scramble pass for fifty some yards was lovely, too.
1: Yes, I was getting to that, but that was just absolutely insane. How he was facing his own end zone and managed to gain fifty yards on that play with a completion. It was sort of Adrian Martinez esque in last year, where he would scramble around a bunch in the backfield, but Adrian would always run that play. Thompson has the arm to throw that play downfield. So, yeah. so for passing, I do think we got a clear upgrade at quarterback. And then the fourth quarter where the amount of impressive throws was very minimal, especially compared to the first three, but there's a couple other reasons that might have been the case, given that.
0: Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt. To be fair, and this will be colored by, like, you have to understand my perspective on the game. I have, like, 24 hours worth of flights to get there three days of build-up, like, it felt like a bowl game. And then, after we lost, every Husker fan was sitting around Dublin wanting to bitch to every other Husker fan about the game. So, I might have some, like, weird microcosmic tapes from that group of people, right? But one thing that I kept hearing over and over again, that upon review I ended up kind of agreeing with is, he was... A lot of the time there were definitely mistakes. The picks were bad. But he was putting the ball on the numbers for guys, and they weren't able to catch it. Yeah. Now, it looked like he was putting a lot of heat on those balls, but also, the offensive line had crumbled at this point in the game. And he needed to get passes off faster. Yeah. And so, I almost don't... I do fault him for the interceptions, although I do think Northwestern secondary is pretty good. Like, I'm overall not that upset with Casey Coston.
1: Oh, oh, I'm not upset with him at all. I just, I, I just would like to see a, a better conclusion to, you know, the brilliant picture he painted to start the game. And all those interceptions, you know, I'd say that those interceptions were like a 50-50 on him and the uh, receiver, because on the first one, Oliver Martin did not extend his arms to even reach for the ball, but then again, the ball could have been put better for him. And on the last one, uh, Wyatt Lever wide receiver, uh, you know, that ball was behind him, but it was in his hands, and it had a lot more zip than it needed to for how short of a pass it was. No, so. oh, I agree. You know, I'd say it's about fifty fifty of you know, these are plays the receivers should make, but the quarterback should have helped him a bit more than he did. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry. I, I think it was to see if Casey Thompson is a good quarterback or the guy who can put on his back and carry us. And it turns out he's a good quarterback. At least from what we've seen so far.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I do want to uh get out her early, like it's a long season. Uh in twenty 20- 18, no, excuse me, 2017. Uh, I came away from the season opener thinking that Tanner Lee looked like the best pure passer the Huskers had had in ages, and then he proceeded to throw three interceptions in a loss to Northern Illinois later. So week one, you can't really extrapolate too much from. But uh, I think that Thompson had more positives and negatives if you look at his whole four quarter performance of the game. And that I think that, you know, going forward, compared to our worries, Thompson is not one or, if he is one, not a major one of those. It's just uh, you'd like to see him make the one or two more plays he didn't, which I think he'll get opportunities to do. And uh, I'm not not confident in him making those in the future.
0: No, I agree. I'm optimistic. Um, special teams were not as bad.
1: For the most part, yes. Uh, The extra points were all uh, stress-free, which is exactly how you'd want them to be. I can't remember a single one, so perfect. Uh, The punting was immaculate. I think that uh, we finally, you know, are welcome into the Big Ten punt fraternity because the punts were immaculate from both sides uh, Saturday. Like, I think that if we get into another battle of punts. You know, we can hold our own against almost anybody. And then the Big Ten. That is so valuable.
0: Weirdly important, yeah.
1: And then, uh, last positive. Um, he got hurt, but Travis Vokalek looked every bit a part of the Austin Allen replacement we needed him to be.
0: How hurt is he?
1: After the game, he said, I just rolled my ankle, I'll be fine. And then at the press conference Tuesday, Frost said he's day-to-day. So, who knows? Oh,
2: shoot. Okay. I mean, we'll we'll have to see. I think
0: I'm excited about number two on the defense. His name is going to escape me.
1: Caleb Tanner?
0: Possibly. He was, like, a defensive end.
1: Yep, that's him.
0: Yeah. That kid can move. Um, but boy, like for as good as we would look, we didn't. I don't. Did we record a single stack?
1: No. I. There was the pass rush was non-existent, not helped by the lack of blitzing from our end, and even on Northwestern's end, there was very few blitzings throughout the entire game. I think we like,
0: showed blitz a lot, and then we would drop the coverage, or we would just kind of hold position and not break through.
1: Yeah. Like, I know Northwestern's O-line is the strength of their team, but I expected a lot more resistance against that than what I got, especially with the reinforcements added on the defensive line, where this looked like, you know, it took from a position of a weakness on the defense to on paper a strength. And then you watched it, and it was back to a weakness again. In, in the way you had all feared before, you know the transfers came in and the new and the people developed were topped up by the coaching staff. It just Northwestern could do anything they wanted up front, and uh, for the most part, you yeah.
0: did. I think weirdly, a person who I wanted to wear more criticism for this game was Schinander, and because I don't think. I don't think we looked as good as we could have, even with the talent that we have, which I understand there are question marks in the defense. See the, the secondary was bad.
1: Yeah, like, I think that, uh, you know, the defense and the secondary and pass rush have not been great for Frost's tenure, with the exception of, you know, last season, which even then the pass rush wasn't all that good, but it, it could get pressure. You know, sometimes. But what's something that worried me in the back of my mind, I just didn't really say it, was uh, last year's You know, defensive line had three COVID seniors. The secondary had two. Yeah. There is a, a lot of things you can coach, but you can't coach age. You can't coach being a lot older than the guy in front of you. And yeah. 23 and 24 – against 19 and 20, that's a huge gap in the college game. One that we don't have again this year.
0: Yeah. That is, that is a big big gap to see. through the three measly little positives we were able to create together. We cannot run the football. Can we start there? That's oh. embarrassing.
1: <laughs> oh my. Yeah, the offensive line like forget the pass protection, which wasn't great, but for the most part kept Thompson's jersey dry. Like he only had two sacks, and one of them was tripped. You know, like the pass protection wasn't great, but it made getting the ball out manageable. The run blocking just <laughs> had maybe two or three plays were allowed any sort of scheme to be picked up by the four backs we tried. That was awful. Like, it wasn't great last year, but good gosh, you can at least, you know, attempt something that looked like a first down off of a run-only package in a
2: drive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was strange because we would pass on first down. And if there wasn't a completion, we would run the ball, maybe take up three yards and leave ourselves a third and long, which we converted a fair few of. But why are we in that situation, right?
1: Yeah, I was I was gonna mention that too, which is for as much hullabaloo was made of Scott giving up the play calling, uh, it wasn't in a it wasn't without questions in the play calling because wouldn't it make more sense to run on first down? and get second and seven, which you would then throw out of, and have two throws to get the first instead of throw on first down. If it's incomplete, run on second down. That was almost always the call after an incomplete on first down. Like, just from, you know, I've never coached a football team. I don't know all the X's and O's and the math and logic behind that decision. But from my perspective, that doesn't seem to make any sense.
0: No, I I fully agree. Um, I am concerned by that. I wanted to like Whipple. I think I still do. I think maybe there was some tension. I mean, I, I hate to play this game. But I do think that it's telling that Scott immediately after the game seemed to criticize Whipple and then immediately walked it back once he got back on American soil. I I think that that is
2: maybe there's maybe a lot more than we think it might.
1: Which, I I have theories of my own about that. Do you want to keep talking about the offense or jump into the theory?
0: It, this is about the offense, but let's okay. you know, maybe hold that for because we're gonna have a big discussion about coaching at the end. I think.
1: Okay. And
0: keep it on the field for now.
1: And and the theories are related to the one on the field thing we have yet to discuss, which
2: holy
0: shit! Do you want to take this? Do you want my walkthrough of like that yeah. moment as sitting in the stands? Like how do we even start?
1: Yes. Okay. So let's let's back up the buff a bit. You know, the offense, like, I, I just am not sure what else there is to analyze. This. The Run blocking made the run game completely mute, and we've already talked about how tops looked in the past game. The wide receiver rotation is the other thing I have an issue with. Uh, Wyatt Lever, I'm sure you're a nice kid, but why are you playing on the final drive?
0: Yeah, know like, that's a very good question.
1: Like, and it makes me feel sad because he's from O'Neill, Nebraska, and that's, you know, the Irish town it has a giant camera that they painted red for the game, only for their, you know, pride and joy to drop the game-winning interception right into Northwestern's hands. Uh, good God. You know, play play one of your transfers and you won't make a Nebraska town as bad. That's all I gotta say. But, uh, yeah. yeah. But there was one run, run play that worked very well and that was Anthony Grant having the first running touchdown over 15 yards since 2017 by a running back. We
0: also had had one really nice edge rush. And I think that's telling. I think we have good backs. I would not be surprised if our running backs are all, if we have a fairly solid cadre of them. But the O-line just sucks so hard. And I'm going to be mean, like... All of the hype that they tried to generate around this pipeline.
1: They were puking.
0: They were puking. We had a whole news cycle about whether or not it was accessible to talk about them puking and how much they were puking and hydration and, God, I don't know. We had all of this hullabaloo about how hard the offensive line was working, and they sucked. It was just... Unacceptably bad. Um, now, granted, I think that that front for Northwestern is probably pretty damn good, right? I get it, but move them a little sometimes, right? At least open a hole. I don't know.
1: Yeah. No, you you basically said it, and I'm not even sure that front was a strength. From what I heard, Northwestern's strengths were uh, the O-line and the secondary, which, uh, you know.
0: This was such a beautiful team.
1: Oh, yes, it was. And for multiple points, we were beating them by double digits. First in the first half with, you know, jumped up to a 14-something lead, and then Northwestern plucks its way back, her offense stalls, we have a very inopportune maybe fumble that...
0: Oh, that I am upset about. I don't think that was a fumble.
1: I, from where I, from what angles I could see on TV, I would not have called it one based on the replay, but given that somehow the ref felt confident enough to call it a fumble, the views I saw were not indisputable beyond all doubt, so... That's
0: fair. That's fair. I just... I am frustrated by it. I'm not sure I'm frustrated at um, the refs, but I am frustrated that it happened. Yeah. Uh, also, I think, so, like, that's a critical moment, but that we could have easily overcome.
1: And, and we did in the second half, where after trailing at halftime, you know, come back on offense, Get You know, defense get a stop, offense get a score. You know, defense gets a turnover, offense two plays later, the long-run play that broke free, Anthony Grant gets the score, back up 11, nine minutes to go in the third. I've set it we up enough. We felt
0: good. We felt so comfortable. And it was the first time that, okay, let's be honest, who has the money and free time to go to a game in Ireland? Older folks. Generally, mostly, older folks. That was the only time that the Oscar side got hyped. Our fans travel well, but then they sit on their asses. And it was, it was not an intense environment at all. Um, that, I'm not really even criticizing, because, like, seeing folks walk around Dublin... Understanding that it was mostly retirees, I I get it, right? But like, the people got hyped after that touchdown. That was the first kickoff where it was like people were excited, and I was just floored. I mean, I I think the whole stadium was in shock. It was it was close to silent after that decision. And that decision obviously being, for those who have been living under a rock, the decision to kick an onside when up by 11 in the third quarter with nine minutes. What the hell? I just, I don't even, how do we break this out? How do we try and get in his head? I don't understand.
1: I, I have a theory on that, but first, uh, how did the event unfold in front of your eyes? Were you even watching the kicker with the remote possibility of it on side, or were you just not even paying attention to it? And then it was like a wait, what? And then an insta-snap.
0: So, obviously, my recollection is going to be tempered by what happened afterwards. If this sounds over-traumatic, dramatic, is, because I'm trying to recollect something that should have been very routine, right? I'm sitting there. I'm looking at the kicker, and I'm looking, I look downfield, and I look at the return man, and I think there were two back, actually. I see them stutter forward, and I'm like, oh, it must have been a short kick, so I pan back towards the kicker, and I don't hit the ball, and I don't see the ball, and then I see the ball dribbling forward towards the Northwestern player. Now, I mean, immediately afterwards, I thought it was a mistake. I genuinely thought that that was screw-up, but then I thought about the trajectory, and I thought about the bounce of the ball, and I'm like, wait, that was a well-executed attempt at an onside kick. It didn't take it didn't... Go the wrong direction that was not to give Justin something to bleep again. That was not a up. That was clearly intentional. And then it was just I looked at my dad and my uncle and the folks who were with us and we were like, Well, we just why? Why would you do that? And like the Irish fans were confused. They were asking people to explain. The Northwestern fans, truthfully and totally fair, looked at each other like aghast and then freaked the ever-loving hell out. Because as I talked with the Northwestern fan walking out of that ball game, he was like, I seriously had already, after you guys scored that run touchdown, and after, after everything had transpired at that point in the game, I was like, okay, Nebraska showed up today. This is going to be hard to come back from. If they can keep holding us to field goals and, you know, maybe match those or score another touchdown or two, we're done for. Like, I was thinking about the pub I was going to go to after the game to hang out. And then the thing that happened, he was like, all right, we're back in this. We can win this game now. And the pass is very clear. I mean, we practically gave it to him in field goal range. And talking to Nebraska fans for the rest of the week about that moment, like, that came up with everyone. And I think that's why the loss felt Shameful. It felt embarrassing to be a Husker fan in Dublin after that. Because there was an understanding, even among us, that what we had seen was grossly stupid. That just, just idiotic. Like, we had watched a kid get cocky playing with friend in Madden and get beat. And, like, there was also a lot of weird revisionism, right? Like, oh, that might have worked, it's just that that guy was super ready to get on that ball. Maybe. But when I watched the replay, something that people would come and say is all three other guys turned around and ran away. And I just assumed that was true. That they would have gotten a hit and, 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 and wouldn't have noticed and we would have gotten the ball back. Watching the replay and all watched Watch again, but I genuinely think all four of those guys who were lined up for Northwestern on the front line were ready for that. If they had been taught, don't turn around till the ball sails over your head. And boy, oh boy, were they. At least that kid was. I can't. you got to assume If you are Scott Frost, that a Pat Fitzgerald team, a coach who every one of the Big Ten has respect for, you've got to assume that this team's going to be coached well and very ready for this game. Why are you doing this? And he says later, I thought we could end the game right there. You already have. If you weren't there then one stop, a little trust in your defense, to get one stop right there. The momentum would not have shifted that much if we were still up by four. I think we had complete control of that game, and I think if we didn't have such a well-polished media shop, you would have heard the players say, what the hell. If I'm a defensive player, I'm offended. I probably brush past it and think whatever whatever. I'm offended. And if I'm a player on that team, regardless, I'm annoyed at that. I, I do't feel to the stay there. I really do. There's been a lot swirling around about how Boosters have said. if he loses the first game he's got to be out. We talked beforehand for months about how this was a must-win to have any kind of a season to put together. This was one of the ones you had to win to get six. It's going to be really hard to get to six now. Maybe you get Oklahoma. But even if you beat Oklahoma, you have to be a good Oklahoma team, in my mind, at this point, to convince the people who matter that you should still be employed. I think we're waiting the clock out on October. I genuinely think that was the most consequential screw-up, I'll try and save you work later, of Scott's mortal life. Because here's the other thing, and I promise, I know I've been talking for like five minutes straight, I'm sorry, but everyone who is anyone in Nebraska football who's a, a big deal all of the big, you know, the, the biggest sports columnists, you, all of the news channels said they're people, but more than that, and this is the important thing, do you think there's a single booster who for their life would have given up tickets to that game? No. If you're really involved in that, and Ronnie was there, and uh, Trev Alberts was there, um, I think the president of the university was there as well. Not. What? Damn it. How am I forgetting his name? Ted.
2: Ted Carter? Ted Carter. Yeah.
0: Ted yeah, Carter is there. Everyone watched that. Everyone was equally shocked and confused. His explanation was bad. I don't know how he keeps his job. I really. I, I will be. God, regardless of what happens next, and I think we'll start the season two and two when we could very easily be four and zero. Oh. With the talent we have, I think four and zero oh was really possible. I'm sick about it, man. I am so frustrated, and I went from, oh, it's kind of a bummer that Scott has been this bad to. I will, I will laugh mirthfully when he finally gets fired, and I hope it's in October and not at the end of the year.
1: Drops Mike. Wow.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a lot. I'm going to I listen to that back later and be like, that was an embarrassingly long rant, but...
1: That was something. That was amazing. Uh... Is there anything you
0: disagree with? Am I being unfair? There
1: there there is one thing I will push back on, and granted I was not in the stadium, the crowd could have made momentum. But I will remind the folks at home that uh, on three plays before the Anthony Grant touchdown that you know gave them an eleven point lead, it was the fumble that gave Nebraska the ball there. Northwestern had a beautifully designed run play where everyone was blocked. And the running back ran 25 yards untouched and just happened to fumble at the end of it. I don't think, regardless if we kick it deep, our defense was stopping that run game. I really don't. I think.
2: No, I mean, maybe, but does that make it a good decision?
1: No, it doesn't make it a good decision, but I'm just saying that the game was lost on that play doesn't exactly imply that the game was winnable without that play. Like, I
0: don't think it was as in the bag, although I do think the momentum matters, and I think that was a momentum killer.
1: Yes, no, almost certainly that slip you know, momentum in Northwestern's favor. I'm not disputing that. I'm just disputing the idea of you know, a one-to-one, if you kick it deep, you win, which I don't think is the case. And I don't think that that onside kick being recovered by Northwestern sealed our fate as a, you know, there were a number of plays in the second half that could have flipped that back if we were able to make them. You know, like if the receivers, you know, don't, if the receivers and quarterback are in slightly better sync on those interceptions, who knows? Yeah,
0: I hear you. I do. But if Casey Thompson had pulled it off in that last drive, if we had to throw a pick there, if the kid from O'Neill had made the catch, if we had scored a touchdown, if we had won it over time, I still think a big part of the conversation this week would be, what the hell? Yeah.
2: Independent of
0: anything else, that decision doesn't make any sense.
1: hmm Which brings me to my 3 prong theory that I teased earlier of why he did it. The first is... But I think we're going to agree on this, I don't. Did you I think Have you given me A a look into your theory here Or Maybe But uh, right,
0: I'm excited
1: The first Reason And and this Okay before I preface this I will preface this By saying That My three theories uh, Are not independent Of each other It could be some element of all of these I don't think It's just one of these Three reasons But here are my Three reasons as, As to why he did it One is Stupidity One is, uh, I think I see something in their kickoff alignment. I'm going to call an on-site kick, because if we get the ball back with this momentum and the clearly-gassed Northwestern defense, that's a three-score lead. That that may be true in your mind for a moment when you're looking at the kickoff alignment, but you have to know that uh, on-site kicks have about a 10% chance of recovery rate. I have seen stats that say surprise onside kicks are significantly higher than that, but still, uh, you as a coach, Scott Frost, have never successfully converted a onside kick all the way since UCF. You are banking on something that has not happened and you are banking on either your kicker placing it directly where they aren't in the alignment, which while the alignment did show Nebraska numbers on that side, there were still two Northwestern players who could make a play on the ball as soon as it was kicked. The best surprise on sides are, you know, when there is literally nobody within 10 yards of where the ball needs to be. That was not the case. That was not the case there. So that's essentially just of my stupidity theory, which is, okay, I think I see something here that, you know, the payoff would be enormous. But the stupidity is the math of, I know surprise on sides are higher, but a 10% chance of this play working, which would give your team like a 60% boost in winning the game versus a play which has normal certainty of not giving the opponent the ball in your own territory, which is kicking it deep. Hell, even a kickoff out of bounds would push them back 20 yards from where they started. So... That would, uh, you know, wouldn't you would really increase or decrease your probability of winning. It would just keep it the same. So why would you gamble on that 60% more <laughs> with something that has a 10% chance of working? That stupidity, I think that's probably the most likely. That's the explanation he has given, given that the following two reflect way worse on him as a coach. Number two is boredom. Nebraska... Uh, Scott Frost was not calling the plays that game. He, this was his first time where he was not entrusted with that. I can see him without that clipboard in front of his face, without, you know, constantly thinking about what play the offense should run next, not knowing what to do. So the second he sees an opportunity to do something, where he doesn't psych himself out of it because, okay, I need to do something. So he dials up the onside kick, and uh, that happens. The third, this is the most recklessly speculative, but given you know, his comments post-game, I don't think it can be ruled out entirely, which is horrifying. The third is jealousy. Uh, the offense was humming without him that half.
0: Yeah, this is, this is the case. This is the correct case. This is, this
1: is it. If Nebraska held on, and won that game with an offense that had absolutely ran over Northwestern in that second half, as it was looking like it was going to do, Mark Whipple would have got a considerable share of the praise from the media and the fans for winning that game. I don't think Scott would have been not praised, but Whipple would have been gotten the lion's share of the credit for the offensive performance. And, and as such, the win in general. There would be nothing you could immediately point to, to Scott Frost doing that would make him the genius behind that win. Unless you recover a surprise onside kick and score right then and there. That's my third theory.
0: I think all of those are good. In order of what I think was happening... One, and then three, and
1: then two. And I think two and three are linked, right? Yeah. Linked, but I'm just wondering, like, what the driving force is in his decision between those two walls of, uh, I need to do something. Is it, I'm going to call this onside kick because uh, I haven't done anything all game, you know? I I would personally feel like I didn't do anything to help us win if I didn't call this, or I don't feel that people would think I had anything to do with this one if I don't call it.
0: God, I hate it. I I hate it. You think of a... Oh, my God. I'm going to get stupid for a minute. You think of a Nebraska coach as a guy who incredibly focused on the job doesn't want the praise. Doesn't want the. Whenever you, in, in a million years, could you see Tom Osborne saying, "Oh, we're having somebody else call the plays," and I feel self-conscious. No. And you could discuss it with him. Even if it's not true, even if, and, and the, the, you know, Scott Frost and God are the only two people who really know the motivation behind that decision, right? And regardless of the motivation, it's a dumb decision. But the fact we're asking this question says a lot about Scott Frost's character and composure as a coach. That's where I'll leave it.
1: Yeah, I don't want to get more speculative to the mind of Scott Frost. Uh, also, since I do have a media pass this year, I'm not out of the woods <laughs> yet. Uh, so I, like I about
0: that, by the way, that's
1: exciting. yeah. Really no, it's we don't typically cover in person because uh, we don't write our own recaps of the game. But I mean, if I want to come down and watch the game, if I think the gas money is worth showing up and watching the game from the press box, I'll go. <laughs> that's
2: pretty cool.
0: That's
1: yeah, awesome. yeah. So because of that reason, I will uh leave my uh. Speculation into Scott's mind motivations at that. I agree that we will not know for sure what it is. I just, of all the reasons you call that play, I think those are the three that would be, you know, even entertainable. (laughs) But now I'll describe the play from my perspective, because I had a very different reaction afterwards than you did, and I honestly imagine most fans. Again, it sort of played out in slow motion where I was thinking three different things before the ball even touched the Northwestern guy's hands. Number one, after immediately left his foot was, because uh, I wasn't really watching for an onside kick, I was just watching a kickoff. The same, I watched almost every kickoff, which is, you know, not dialed in a thousand percent. But I see it leave his foot, not the quarter might it going whew, straight to the right. So my first... The immediate instinct is a, oh, no, that's the mistake, like our kickers have made before in that situation. And then I see it, you know, go low to the ground and bounce like, oh, my gosh, surprise onside. If we recover this, and then Northwestern hops on it easily, and the big smile from a, if we recover this, it's over, didn't leave my face. I was like, oh, my God. he who won for the moon, he placed what may honestly be his entire job on a 10% chance of that play working. That is a delightful decision if you're someone like me who loves college football because it produces some very unlikely, unfathomable decisions from coaches and players alike. So when that happened, The fan in me who was watching that game and rooting for a Nebraska win completely left. The part of me, the sicko, who wants to see how stupid can a football game get, was totally in control for the rest of that evening. I mean, morning. It was a night game there, so it's weird. But, uh, yeah, When when they scored and then we threw an interception, I put my hands up in here. Because the game had gotten more stupider. Same thing with the second interception. It's I was like not Just in my it's living room.
0: Okay, well, no one would like wish you being you for acting like this.
1: No. I was uh <laughs> I was by myself and uh yeah, it went from a oh my gosh, the Huskers might be decent this year, we might win this game, I've wanted to win. It's like then it turned to I miss this stupid sport so much. How stupid yeah, no, can this game get? to the point where I was cheering Nebraska mistakes because it was last year all over again where, you know, I had been broken so much as a fan, and I was also not thinking in a fan context in any of the, during any of those mistakes where uh, if something bad happened, I would, you know, laugh about it, and that has, laughter has turned to cheering when something bad happens, as so far as that bad thing is funny, and let me tell you, for all of the special teams' gaps, there was no surprise on side last year. This is the show that keeps on giving. Like, I didn't even think this was a possibility, let alone the situation. That is an amazingly sicko decision from Scott Frost. And as such, it made that entire game so much more digestible, because I was no longer a fan at the end of it. I was a sicko. And then I immediately turned my television to watch a team that has won three games in the past two years. And they only lost by 14 to the Mountain West Camps. So UConn is improving. They might be a 4-win team this year. Wow, a 4-win team. 4-win UConn. Talk to your kids about them.
0: Jesus. <laughs> you know... As much as it pains me, uh, and as much as I would have wanted to hit you for saying this in the moment, like, yeah, that is that is what we can expect out of the Husky football year. Hilarity. Yeah. Embarrassment.
1: That game did nothing to dissuade my interest in this in the future. It just changed my interest from a Oh wow! I'm really invested on the highs and lows of this team, and you know the high points will make me still invested as a fan. This could take us where we want to be too. I cannot wait to see what brilliant football ideas play himself out on the field.
2: I <laughs> was so screwed.
0: Oh my god. Yep. So, listen. If if you don't want to answer this question, Mr. Media Pass, I completely understand.
1: Um, but what do you think Trump Alberts is thinking about these days? Who? Uh, I would be. Uh, I don't think it's overreaching to say he's got a list of people in mind now, and uh, is going to wait out for more information on this season as to when and who exactly people start calling on that list. But I think the tide has turned uh, everywhere for Scott Frost. As even on social media, where uh, there was a strong petition of Husker fans last year who would respond to any negativity uh, with, you know,
2: oh, you're just
1: being a hater, you know, you don't give him a chance to succeed, you know, it's the media like you, why we never win. Even those people are sick of him. Like,
0: yeah.
1: I, I think uh, this home opener's crowd is going to be a very interesting study as to how many people will actually show up and uh, still be invested in it. So I think, you know, those things are worth keeping an eye on. I don't think that... Uh, I, one thing I will speculate on is I don't think Trev has, like, a whiteboard counting down the days until October 1st. Because I don't think I think this is very unlikely but I don't think this is unsalvageable for the rest of the season like if Scott gets up 11 again I'm so confident in saying that he will not site kick again that it would be the funniest thing in the world if he did like they just have to make sure that week 0 was the worst this team looked which is what it was last year and then they corrected the ship decently so like I think that's a very unlikely outcome, but I don't think you can rule it out just yet to the point where uh, it's the 100% guarantee he's getting fired. So I don't think that uh, the, the, the AD is operating and this coach is going to be fired no, just yet. I think it, that was a week zero game. There's still a lot of season left. And while the fan base and a lot of people may have you know already wrote his fate down, I think you have to wait and see a bit more information if you're actually making that decision. I don't know if that's what Trev is doing. I have, I will say right now, I have no way of knowing any insight into what he is thinking. I am just trying to put myself in the mind of somebody who has to make that decision. And I think that uh, you're going to want to wait a bit more before you, you know, have to actually move forward in the coach hiring process beyond just making a list. But I do think if you're making a list you would have started after last Saturday if you're you know
2: and you're not already.
1: Yeah. If if you and if you started already, you're gonna get a bit more serious about figure crossing off. That I am pretty confident saying is uh, you know, the list of backup plans has gotten a lot more attention. I don't see any any fault in that statement. Yeah,
0: I mean I think it's kept out quickly. The rumors about Urban
2: Meyer came out, Um, and that they came from not
1: like an unassailable source, in Dan Patrick, but not like a blog. Eh. Dan Patrick last year also claimed that uh, the playoffs was going to expand before twenty twenty four, which wasn't even logistically possible. So.
0: Yeah.
1: I he's he's a good interviewer. He does have his you know moments of a credibility and stuff he's plugged into, but his college football source has not been the most reliable. And if you listen to more in that interview, the source also claims that uh, Urban is linked to like Arizona State, which, you know, should tell you a bit more about that. Am I saying hiring Urban Meyer is outside the realm of possibility? I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that just yet, Uh, but I think it's still unlikely and I think a likely source of the rumors could even be from Urban Meyer's own camp of just getting his name out there again. Mm. More so than this is a legitimate source from the Nebraska Athletic Department. So you know, that I
0: that. But it's the Nebraska Athletic Department, but I thought it was interesting and I thought it was interesting to see how quickly people responded. Because Urban Meyer, not a guy people are high on these days, um, but I... I think it's interesting how quickly people responded positively to the news
1: that someone was being looked at. Possibly, yeah. And I and I will admit it. Uh, it grosses me out how a percentage of people when that news broke were uh, very willing to accept him with open arms, given that oh, this yeah. is a redemption project. After yeah. this is, you know. A top three most scandal-ridden uh, NFL coach of all time, and he was only there for one year. And uh, he was there because he got fired. I mean, that's not hired. He left his previous job after covering up a wide receiver coach's domestic violence case. Like it is, yeah, it is gross. How many people are willing to take on that uh, that redemption project because he's, you know, likely to win games here? Not that, you know, all coach, all other coaches are angels compared to him, but you know what you're getting into in giving him his next shot at redemption of something he has shown no atonement for if you hire him this year to be the coach of this team. And I just think it's, you know, gross how many people are willing to overlook that, you know, that he has not made his way back into the good graces yet to earn any positive feelings beyond, oh, he might make our team win games, which I don't think should trump everything else.
0: I also don't know for certain that he will. Like, maybe, but it took him a long time to build Ohio State, and it took a lot of really specific conditions. Like, separate of the he's a terrible guy, and I think there's a decent argument that you shouldn't hire him because he's a terrible guy, like, I'm, I'm sympathetic, as a very least, to that argument. I might actually believe it myself, that, like, Urban Meyer is such a bad dude. He should not work in football ever again. But I'm also just not convinced that there is a silver bullet. I think we're bad now. And I think it's going to take – like, I don't know that we ever get good good again. Is that a fair – like, is it time to start talking in those terms as Buster
1: fans? I don't think so, because of how uncertain the sports teacher is, and uh, I will push back. I think Urban started winning very early in his Ohio State tenure. Uh, That Ohio State program was interrupted because of scandals and, you know, an interim coach. He got them back to where they were very quick, and uh, he would be building something more than he had at Ohio State and Florida, but, I mean, he's recruited well. He has a track record of getting kids to the pros which will trump, you know, character concerns in a lot of, you know, recruit size as it has in his previous two stops. So I think that, you know, that's going to not be an issue. I think that with the uncertainty of college football going forward, I just have no clue who the coaching pool of candidates we would begin to look at is. Are ACC and Pac-12 coaches from non-major brands on the menu or not? Because eventually they will be. Is that year this year, or is it not? Because if you can build a successful program at Utah, at Wake Forest, at NC State, you know, at Iowa State, at Baylor, are those coaches going to be? Do those coaches see the writing on the wall that they will be left behind because they're not at a major brand and would like to get a jump on that now? I have no idea, but I think there are plenty of coaches. Who have taken programs in a worse spot than Nebraska, with worse facilities than Nebraska, in a worse location than Nebraska, and got them to a point where they are competing for their division or conference. Will we be, a you know, a juggernaut like the likes of Alabama? Unlikely, but there is no reason this team can't be Wisconsin or Iowa consistently, and at this point I think fans would take that, and once you get to that level, then maybe you can have conversations about what it takes to the next level. But I just don't see how getting good again is not possible. If you can get good, there's a chance you can get
0: good good. So That's, that's all we want, at the end of the day, get get good. Mm-hmm. If nothing that happens in this North Dakota game, is it worth potting about?
1: Uh, if I certainly hope these next two weeks are not worth potting about, I think that this program is not in a good place, but it's not in the place where it loses to a bad FBS team and a bad Sun Belt team. You know, even if this game is clo- are closer than expected, like if both of these games are more than two possession wins, I don't see what we need to discuss. You know, I think Oklahoma is the next big. If you wanted to do Oklahoma preview, we can. But uh,
0: that's kind of where I'm at. Is like. Oklahoma, we kind of love this. efficiency we're scheduling on the pod. I think the next time people should expect to hear from us, uh, and the next time we should expect to speak, would be an Oklahoma preview. Uh, Because I do think that game is worth previewing, because that is the last big thing to happen before that October deadline kicks in. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So recapping those two games and getting in the right mindset of what do we think happens given certain scenarios and outcomes following that Oklahoma game I think would be useful.